America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is The Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. This is not the voice of your cultural crusader. It's of his associate producer, a rock star, Greg, here in Seattle. Well, Michael is over on the islands uh, in transit, actually, right now on his way to catch a flight. And the plan today was to run some best of tape. And we'll do some of that a little bit later. But first, couldn't help but want to get Michael's take on the news story of the day to lead the show, which is the release of WNBA player Brittany Griner from Russian custody. Of course, this was all done uh, through prisoner swap. Who is Russia getting back? Someone designated as the merchant of death, Victor Boot, who at one point was the second most wanted man in the world, only second to Osama bin Laden. A fair trade? Moments ago, standing together with her, Wife Sherelle, uh, in the Oval Office, I spoke with Brittany Griner. She's safe. She's on a plane. She's on her way home. After months of being unjustly detained in Russia, held under intolerable circumstances, Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and, uh, and she should have been there all along. This is a day we've worked toward for a long time. We never stopped pushing for her release. It took painstaking and intense negotiations, and I want to thank all the hard-working public servants across my administration who worked tirelessly to secure her release. Uh, Jim Garrity of National Review is calling this whole episode a U.S. concession and not a diplomatic victory. But without further ado, let's get uh, Michael Medved's take. The eponymous Michael Medved. Is the signal clear? Are you hearing me, uh, Crystal, there I, I uh, over in Hawaii, you. Michael? I, I literally am on a bus <laughs> on the way to the uh, airport in Maui. And and again, we're going to Pearl Harbor later today, uh, just the day after Pearl Harbor Day. And I'm actually going to be speaking to this group a little bit about Pearl Harbor and its meaning, but this is not Pearl Harbor. It's it's not uh, the kind of epic disaster that I think Americans always fear. It's not 9/11, but it's terrible. And what strikes me as terrible about it is we have a very very unhealthy theme that runs through a lot of our contemporary politics and culture in the United States, which is that celebrities are different from you and me, that celebrities lead a different life, that it's a different form of humanity. And that's what happens with the striking difference between the treatment, Brittany Griner uh, and Paul Whelan. And uh, if we're going to have celebrities and people who get special recognition and honor, it should be people who are serving the country. And this is nothing against Brittany Griner. I think she got a terrible raw deal from one of the most evil regimes on earth, if not the most evil regime on earth right now. And again, it seems to me that at least a lot of the early initial comment uh, about the, the so-called prisoner swap implies some kind of equivalence between uh, somebody who really was an evildoer and somebody who had uh, psychiatric and, and drug addiction problems. And they're not the same. And uh, that is something that I think the administration is going to have to 
make clear again and again and again this is not an even trade and people will evaluate it like a baseball trade hope the Mariners continue to do well in that regard but uh, it's not a baseball trade it has to do with basically creating at least in the minds of much of the world an equivalent that doesn't exist yeah, Victor Boot, who Russia's getting back, was convicted in 2011 for conspiring to kill U.S. nationals, conspiring to kill U.S. officers and employees, conspiring to acquire and use anti-aircraft missiles, conspiring to provide material support to a foreign terrorist org. I was making the point earlier that this prisoner swap is an ominous signal for Paul Whelan because if the merchant of death is who the U.S. is willing to give up to get back a WNBA star. Who or what would America be willing to give up to get back a former Marine who's been in detention since 2018? Well, right. And, and of course, this all relates to the desire for, for Putin to escape from the trap he is in in, in Ukraine and about some of the crucial issues about w will there ever be an acceptable end to this to this war short of some kind of sweeping Ukrainian victory which we can ardently pray for but uh, is it possible that in the future they will talk about oh you want Paul Whelan well then you have to cut off some of your aid and support for uh, a, a regime that obviously uh, Putin is determined to destroy and a regime that has the support of most of the civilized world. Doesn't this signal to you yet again, it's another prime example of how culture is often upstream of politics because this Brittany Griner case has received mass attention in the American media in the sports world, in the entertainment world. And as you alluded to with your opening comments here, it's almost like Griner had special status as a celebrity. She's a part of the WNBA. She's a lesbian, African-American. She checks the appropriate boxes. And you can't help but think that special treatment by the Biden administration was afforded to her. Disagree, agree? No, I think that's exactly the point. It's that idea. You know, there's a famous exchange between F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway that people talk about. And Scott Fitzgerald made the comment to Hemingway, which he then reported, the rich are different from you and me. And, uh, and then uh, Hemingway re replied gruffly, yeah, they have more money. But it's, it's not just that. It's not just that Gr Brittany Griner obviously has more money. It's that there is almost a separate standard, the the kind of uh, behavior, and and again, I'm sorry for Brittany Griner. No one deserves to be uh, to be imprisoned on on those charges by this evil Russian regime, but surely she must have been warned that she was indulging in dangerous habits when she made the agreement to play for that uh, Russian team. Uh, now, again, not saying she should rot in prison forever. I'm glad that she's released. Any person with a scrap of feeling would be happy that she's released. But uh, now what we need is, I think, a, a very strong bipartisan, uh, not politically exploitative, but uh, a conscientiously minded move to get uh, Paul Whelan out.
and who knows? I mean, Putin is is so unpredictable, and uh, the the idea that uh, he continues to suffer after what has been four years uh, imprisoned by the Russians, uh, this is this is all tied up with the important the importance of actually not losing uh, the the battle in, in Ukraine for, for decency and security and, and independence. Uh, Michael, safe travels as you are literally on a bus right now making your way to the airport. Thanks for being available to chime in on your show here about the news of the day, this consequential prisoner swap. I, I think you said it best. We can rejoice that an American is coming home who was wrongly imprisoned and at the same time be dismayed at the cost to get her back. All right, it is the Michael Medved Show. We've got some best of content coming up, so stick around. We will be right back. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. very special broadcast of the Michael Medved show World War II myths mistakes and lies it's so important to confront some of these distortions because people use World War II all the time as an example of mistakes or policy decisions that we need to either make or avoid and very often they base their knowledge and their arguments about World War II on misinformation. Part of that misinformation we've talked about is the idea that World War II was just a continuation of World War I. Obviously not true. Different cast of characters, different array of nations, and very, very different stakes. Then you've also heard, I'm sure, that World War II was made inevitable because of the harsh Treaty of Versailles. One of the reasons I hate that particular lie, and it is a lie, is because it lets the Western leaders, particularly the leaders of Britain, France, and yes, the United States of America, off the hook for all of the failures that those leaders participated in during the interwar period and they shouldn't be let off the hook because there was nothing inevitable about the cataclysmic disaster known as world war two it involved all kinds of mistakes and one of the other mistakes that people make about the war is the suggestion that the absolutely crucial decisive mistake that was made was made at the munich conference in 1938, just a year before the war, where Neville Chamberlain, the leader of Great Britain, and Deladier, the leader of France, both appeased Hitler by allowing him to take over the Sudetenland and Czechoslovakia. Look, that was a very, very important moment. But that was not the decisive mistake. It wasn't even close. There were two others that you need to know about that were much more serious. One involves the reoccupation of the Rhineland, and the other involves a totally, totally misguided guarantee to Poland. Let's get to each of those. First of all, the nature of the Treaty of Versailles. The treaty that ended World War I, that was ultimately negotiated, part of the problem with the negotiations was Woodrow Wilson got very sick in the middle of the negotiations and things did not turn out the way that he wanted them to exactly. But one of the things that Wilson agreed on, and everybody agreed on, is that Germany would have to be demilitarized. Part of the terms of the Treaty of Versailles were similar to the kind of treaty that Japan signed in 1945 at the end of World War II. 
Germany was not allowed to have a major army. They were going to have to keep their military forces down to less than 100,000. And very sensitive areas of Germany, in particular what's known as the Rhineland, which is right on the French border, would have to be demilitarized. They were not allowed to put any troops in the Rhineland at all. Germany was also not allowed to develop an air force. So Germany was basically kept as a what would have to be a pacifist uh, or a non-military power that could develop economically, that could develop the standard of living and the influence of its citizens, but could not develop its military traditions or its military force. That was what the Treaty of Versailles said. It wasn't an unreasonable position. And by the way, that's part of what allowed Japan to prosper so dramatically after World War II is Japan did not, under its constitution after World War II, develop any kind of substantial army at all. Today, the United States actually would like to see our Japanese allies with a little bit more military force, but because of their commitments at the end of World War II and because of the Japanese constitution, they're not allowed to do that. In any event, after Adolf Hitler took over in Germany, and he took over in Germany not through violence, he tried that with the Munich Beer Hall Putsch in 1923, but... He went to prison, then he came back, and he built up his political power, and he got himself made chancellor of Germany in 1933. He was very openly committed to disregarding the Versailles Treaty, and that was part of why he was popular. At one point, Hitler wanted Germany to withdraw from the League of Nations, this sort of rump United Nations-like organization that the United States wisely never joined. When Hitler put it to a vote of the German people, and even anti-Nazi historians say that vote was basically fair, 95% of Germans voted to withdraw from the League of Nations because they felt the League of Nations was anti-German, that they were being persecuted, they were being frowned upon. And part of what Hitler determined to do was to violate the Treaty of Versailles, to go ahead and build up the German Air Force. He understood that air power would be decisive in any future war, and to eventually build up the German army. But before he did that, he basically tested the West. In March of 1936, he uh, sent one battalion of German troops led by a division of mounted cavalry. That's how serious it was. I mean, guys on horses went rattling across a bridge and violated the Treaty of Versailles very openly and occupied the Rhineland. Now, understand, the Rhineland was German territory. This was part of Germany. But under the treaty, very specifically, the French had insisted the Germans are not allowed to have any troops in the Rhineland at all. Hitler gave his troops the order to go ahead, move into the Rhineland. But if the French made any trouble at all and came after them, they were supposed to retreat immediately. The French at the time had the biggest and in many ways the best army in the world. They had 500,000 troops available to clear out the very poorly armed, a very poorly equipped German forces who had gone into the Rhineland. Most military historians will tell you it could have taken 48 hours, maybe maximum 72 hours, for the French to do the job with almost no casualties and to get rid of the troops that Hitler had sent in to occupy the Rhineland. The French did nothing. Absolutely nothing. Why not? Well, you could say because they were French. At the time, France was paralyzed by the normal political crises that they were having at the time, where governments couldn't last for more than a month or two. At one point, right on the eve of war, there was one government fell that because the mistress of one of the French politicians 
didn't like the previous politician, de la DA. I mean, this is the French. But there was another reason that they did nothing. There was basically bitter disillusionment throughout the Western world, and including the United States of America, about World War I. Woodrow Wilson had sold the war as the war to end war, the war to make the world safe for democracy. At the end of the war, people saw a world that wasn't particularly safe for democracy. They saw a nightmare regime emerging in the Soviet Union, where Stalin was in the process of killing 20 million Russian civilians, butchering them. The world was not safe for democracy. There was great disillusionment about military power. The French were determined that they wanted to avoid war, and the best way to do that was to spend a fortune on military equipment to build up a big stable line called the Maginot Line and to defend themselves against any attack. But were they about to attack Germany, even in the Rhineland, where there was such an ill-equipped, vulnerable force? No, they weren't going to bestir themselves to do that, and the British did nothing as well. Hitler got the message. His potential enemies to the West will do nothing to stop him, would react to force with fear. When you send that message to a man like Adolf Hitler, you are asking for trouble. You are asking for world war. And that is exactly what the French and the British and the rest of the world got. More on the myths, mistakes, and lies on World War II. This is the Michael Medved Show. Medved show a very special broadcast about World War II, so often misused in arguments about our current situation. A special broadcast about the myths, mistakes, and lies about World War II. And one of those myths, mistakes, and lies has to do with the interwar period where the leadership was so shabby, particularly of Britain and France, and then after 1933, very shabby in the United States of America by Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was, uh, I mean, hugely incompetent and hugely unprepared for leading this country into some kind of formidable world status. The United States at the time was ranked 16th among all the world's armies. Well, the French had an army of 5 million. We had an army and Navy and Air Force all combined of 137,000. We ranked 16th in the world, just behind Portugal, and just ahead of Romania in terms of world power. Now, that's pathetic, and Roosevelt did absolutely nothing to adjust that situation, allowing the United States to be largely and unilaterally disarmed and unprepared for war. But the British and French did spend money, particularly the French, on preparing for war, and yet they were unwilling to use any of their resources when Hitler occupied the Rhineland in 1936. And then not long thereafter came the Anschluss, where Hitler went ahead and occupied Austria and basically absorbed Austria, which is the country in which he had been born, into Germany itself. Britain and France again did nothing. Why not? Well, because it was a move that was largely popular among Austrians. And it was. I mean, clearly the majority of people in Austria wanted to be part of this grand new German Reich, this uh, new remaking Hitler thought of the old Kaiser's empire and of the old Holy Roman Empire. That's why it was a third Reich. The original Reich, he thought, was the 
original Holy Roman Empire and then the Kaiser's Empire, which was short-lived, 1870 to 1918, and now his new Third Reich, which he said would last a thousand years, a thousand Jahre Reich. And yeah, the Austrians were excited about that, but so were other Germans who lived elsewhere in the world. And some of those Germans lived in Czechoslovakia and the Sudetenland. Now, the Sudetenland was heavily German, lots of big mineral resources that Hitler coveted. But it's also true that the Sudeten Germans didn't want to live under Czechoslovakia, which was a new country that had been created by the Versailles Treaty out of the ashes of the old Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so Hitler was determined to capture the Sudetenland, to take it away from Czechoslovakia and incorporate it into Germany. And that precipitated the Munich Conference, where very famously Neville Chamberlain and Deladier, the French premier, came. There was also Mussolini was there briefly. There were Italian representatives. But they came to discuss the fate of Europe, and basically they all sold Czechoslovakia out. It was a particular disaster, because Czechoslovakia was not a pushover. It had a bigger army than the United States of America. They also had a ring of forts along the German border. They were ready to prepare themselves and to defend themselves against some kind of German onslaught, but the British sold them out, despite the fact that there had been a treaty from the French guaranteeing that uh, France would go to war to defend Czechoslovakia if need be. Lesson to world. Do not depend upon French treaty commitments. Important lesson. In any event, this piece in our time that was provided, so said Neville Chamberlain, by the Munich conference, of course, lasted, well, actually, it was in September of 1938 that the Munich conference took place. October 14th and 15th, Hitler violated the agreement he had made one month before and occupied the rest of Czechoslovakia. The whole business was shameful. Poland even took part of Czechoslovakia, and this thriving democracy and very wonderful country, the Czech Republic today is still a wonderful country, had been totally subverted and betrayed by the desire to appease Hitler. Why did they do it? Well, first of all, they wanted to avoid war. Second of all, there was this suspicion that Hitler was basically right, because he was obviously incorporating people who wanted to be incorporated into his new Reich. And what did Franklin Roosevelt have to say about the whole thing? He said a two-word message to Chamberlain after the uh, Munich conference. The two words... Good man. Yeah, Roosevelt enthusiastically supported Munich. It is amazing, amazing how Roosevelt's reputation as a far-sighted statesman who saw the dangers of Nazism has survived the truth. But you're going to get that truth about Franklin D. Roosevelt and the coming of World War II. Roosevelt made a big and negative contribution. That and more on World War II, Myths, Mistakes, and Lies. This is the Michael Medved Show. This is Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. A study at England's University of Sussex warns those who snack while watching television or playing video games are more likely to overeat, greatly increasing risks of obesity. You're less likely to be able to tell how full you feel, Professor Martin Yeomans explained. You're more likely to keep snacking. This is important for anyone wanting to stay a healthy weight. 
Well, the conclusions of the study might seem obvious, but still convey an important message about the hours we lavish on screens, including our obsession with social media. Few people feel satisfied after just a few minutes of screen time. Social and entertainment media are deliberately designed to encourage you to keep watching, to keep clicking, to always yearn for more. Nothing in our screen engagement promotes feelings of contentment or fullness. Perpetual hunger characterizes most addictions, including our often thoughtless indulgence in all forms of media diversion. I'm Michael Medved. This special broadcast of the Michael Medved Show, World War II, Myths, Mistakes, and Lies. Some fine film music there from composer Lee Holdridge for a movie called Tuskegee Airmen about the deservedly legendary pilots, black pilots, who fought in the segregated Army Air Corps of World War II. Talking about mistakes and decisive mistakes made by the leadership of the interwar years of course the munich conference was a mistake but it wasn't as serious a mistake as the french passivity when hitler occupied the rhineland in 1936 or a mistake that followed up on munich after munich happened and chamberlain announced that we have peace in our time and roosevelt congratulated him and everybody seemed to be happy and lovey-dovey a month later after hitler violated the agreement one month later and captured the rest of Czechoslovakia and dismantled that unfortunate land. After Hitler did that, Neville Chamberlain went to the British Parliament and said, okay, no more Mr. Nice Guy. We uh, will now give a guarantee to Poland. If Hitler has designs on Poland, and Hitler had been talking about that, if Hitler has designs on Poland doing the same thing to Poland that he did to Czechoslovakia, we will go to war to defend Poland. And that became British policy and then French policy. Now, why was that a mistake? It was a mistake because there was no way that Britain could defend Poland. This is what is so mad about the whole thing. Czechoslovakia was defensible. It had a defensible border. It had forts on the border. It had the Skoda Iron Works, the munitions works, some of the biggest munitions works in Europe, as a matter of fact. And it had a strong army and was willing to fight. Poland was also a very patriotic country. It had just emerged for the first time after a 100 years of no Poland in the world. The new Poland had been created at the Versailles Treaty, and the Poles certainly didn't want to give up their independence. But their whole issue with Hitler was very similar to the Czech issue with Hitler. There was a city in Poland called Danzig, which is called Gdansk today, which had a majority German population. They wanted to be part of the New Reich, at least the majority of people there seemed to. And Hitler was making noise about a Danzig corridor, about having free access for German forces to this city of Danzig that had all these Germans in it. Now, for Chamberlain and Deladier in France to guarantee to defend Poland was in many ways a meaningless and totally misguided commitment because they couldn't do it. If you look at the map, uh, to, to get to Poland, they would have to go all the way around Germany. It wasn't like Czechoslovakia, where they could have moved and helped to reinforce a country that, that was already capable of defending itself. This is a special broadcast of the Michael Medved Show, a best of. Lots more coming up. Stick around. We'll be right back.
listening to a best of the Michael Medved show. A British statesman of our own era in 1996, Sir Roy Denman of the Labour Party, a lefty, said that the guarantee to Poland was thus placing the decision for peace or war in the hands of a swashbuckling yet inefficient military dictatorship, that would be the Pelsudski regime in Poland, to which Britain could give no effective aid. The fear that after Poland, Hitler would have attacked Britain was an illusion. As he had made clear in Mein Kampf, Hitler would have marched against Russia. As it was, Britain was dragged into an unnecessary war, which cost her nearly 400,000 dead, bankruptcy, and the disillusion of the British Empire. This is the case that Pat Buchanan makes, and it's a very controversial but fascinating book, A Republic, Not an Empire. And I happen to think that Pat Buchanan is right about the totally misguided nature of making a commitment that people couldn't enforce. It was like the French commitment to Serbia that helped to lead to World War I. You should not make commitments, obviously, to nations that you can't defend, and especially given the fact that there probably is reason to believe that Hitler's real interest was making war against Stalin and moving to the east against Russia. Remember, at the time that Chamberlain made the commitment to Poland, Hitler had not yet made his deal with Stalin. As a matter of fact, at that time, Stalin was reaching out to Britain and to France, saying, hey, let's make an alliance here. They didn't consider Stalin a reliable ally. They were right. They were horrified by the cruelty and barbarity of the Stalin regime, but the recognition should have been very clear that it was much more advantageous for Hitler to go to the east and to attack Russia rather than to turn his attention on to the western powers, onto Britain and France. In fact, in Mein Kampf, what Hitler wrote was, we terminate the endless German drive to the south and west of Europe and direct our gaze toward the lands in the east. We finally terminate the colonial and trade policy of the pre-war period and proceed to the territorial policy of the future. But if we talk about new soil and territory in Europe today, we can think primarily only of Russia and its vassal border states. Hitler hated the communist regime, and as a matter of fact, there were people even at the time who thought it would be an advantageous thing if the evil Soviet dictatorship ended up fighting and struggling against the evil Nazi dictatorship, taking Hitler's pressure and attention away from the West. But by guaranteeing Poland, well, of course, by guaranteeing Poland, the British were making that very unlikely and basically doing themselves to go to war. Now, in terms of Roosevelt's position, Roosevelt's position has been hugely misunderstood. The terrific British historian Paul Johnson writes, It is a myth that FDR was anxious to bring America into the war and was prevented from doing so by the overwhelming isolationist spirit of the American people. The evidence shows that FDR was primarily concerned with his domestic policies and had no wish to join in a crusade against Nazism or totalitarianism or indeed against international aggression. He took no positive steps to involve the United States in the conflict. The war came as much of a surprise and an unwelcome surprise to him as to anyone else. He didn't do anything to veto or to block the neutrality acts that made it difficult for America to provide meaningful support for the West. Nor did he meaningfully rearm America, which he could have done. There was even some public support for that. 
The notion that he was a passionate defender of freedom, writes Paul Johnson, throughout the world, determined to assist the forces of democracy by all the means in his power, but frustrated by an isolationist Congress, is another myth of these times. Efforts by the British government to put pressure on the White House to take a more active role in defense of freedom against totalitarian aggression, neither Europe or Asia, were quite unavailing. The isolationist spirit of Congress, he writes, was advanced as an excuse rather than a reason for an activity. The truth about Roosevelt and the rest of World War II on this special broadcast. This is the Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. A new study of the aging process demolishes one of the chief leftist claims about health care that government control can eliminate inequality. The research conducted by Harvard and University College London looked at more than 25,000 people over 50 in the U.S. and the U.K. In both countries, subjects with higher net worth enjoyed an identical advantage of eight to nine disability-free years compared to those with little or no personal wealth. The results shocked experts who expected that Britain's highly touted government-funded National Health Service would produce more equal outcomes than the United States. Data strongly suggests the real difference in health and longevity reflect common patterns in both countries where the poor are far more likely to smoke, to consume unhealthy diets, to abuse drugs and alcohol, and shun regular exercise. In both America and Britain, health depends less on government programs than on lifestyle choices we can control. I'm Michael Medved. broadcast of the Michael Medved show about World War II myths, mistakes, and lies giving you the truth about history's most costly and most decisive conflict. Uh, talking about getting into the war and the British guarantee that they would go to war to defend Poland. Hitler wasn't even sure that he believed it. And that was part of his calculation. The British didn't go into the war to defend Austria against the Anschluss, to defend the Rhineland from being occupied, to defend Czechoslovakia. Why, was the question asked, should the British die for Danzig, which was the German city that Hitler wanted to seize in Poland. But the British guarantee was there, and Hitler countered by negotiating the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, surprising the whole world just weeks before the beginning of the war, by getting a guarantee from Stalin that Stalin wouldn't oppose him if he went into Poland, that Stalin, as a matter of fact, would help carve up Poland and Stalin would be able to get control of the Baltic republics of Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, and also a chunk of Finland, which it wasn't so easy for Stalin to grab. But with Stalin's approval, Hitler launched the war on September 1st, 1939, invaded Poland to, uh, quote, relieve the German speakers who were in that country. And then the British declared war, even though they could do nothing to help the Poles because they were simply too far away. The British and the French declared war on Germany, though they didn't really do anything to strike at Germany, even though they probably should have in retrospect. One of the myths about the war is that it was just an easy cakewalk for the Germans to attack Poland. Now, the Poles did not have a huge army. They had an obsolete air force. The air force fought heroically. A lot of people know about cavalry charges by mounted Polish soldiers against German tanks. Actually, some of those charges went pretty well. 
The Poles ended up destroying, in their one month of struggling for their survival, they destroyed 217 German tanks and 285 planes with their outmoded air force. But they uh, ended up losing, obviously, to the Blitzkrieg. But not before they had succeeded in killing 10,572 Germans. 50,000 Poles died. But 10,572 Germans. When you think about how many people that is in a country like Germany, which was about the fourth the size and population that America is today, that would be the equivalent of 40,000 people dead in America today in one month. This was not a bloodless walkover, and it goes to the point that Britain and France should have attacked immediately while Germany was busy with the Poles. But they didn't. They entered a period of what became known as a phony war, playing a waiting game, waiting for Germany to attack them. Another fatal mistake. So many mistakes made by leaders, and a bunch of mistakes made by people who don't know their history, which we are trying to correct. You know the old saying by Santayana, the Harvard philosopher, that those who do not learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. So important that we understand the past of the greatest conflict in the history of the world, the bloodiest and the most influential, World War II, myths, mistakes, and lies in this greatest nation on God's green earth. You're listening to a special Best of the Michael Medved Show.